Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Because we are going through a message series on the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we're in Mark 13. And so we're going to read it here. But a lot of what we're going to read in Mark 13 Uh, has been interpreted through a rapture lens and an end-of-the-world apocalyptic lens. And so we wanted to talk about that and to say that these are some feelings that might arise for you as you hear these. Um, And we're going to keep on unpacking it to say what all could be going on here in this passage. What is Jesus talking about? So uh, we're in Mark 13. If you have a Bible with you or if you have a Bible app, that's great. You can follow along, make notes. Uh, But in Mark 13, 1 and 2, it says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Um, Before we go on, I want to make sure we're kind of setting the scene so we don't just jump in. But we have this group of disciples that are kind of from all over. And they've been traveling up in the northern region, um, up with lots of different people, but they are in Jerusalem. They finally have made their movement into Jerusalem during Passover. A lot of energy, a lot of people. Imagine if you've ever gone to like a Timbers game or a Blazers game. All the people in the concourse, all the energy, and we're all gathered around this big, huge thing. I want you, we were going to show like the clip from Elf uh, when Will Ferrell gets into New York City. And he's like, What? That would have been the disciples' experience. What is the city? And this is like genuine, I mean, pre-Tim LaHaye rapture. Like, whoa, look at these buildings. This is amazing. And it's, there's a beautiful kind of innocence as they're calling Jesus to like, look at these buildings. And Jesus goes, they are incredible, aren't they? And yet not one stone will be on another. He continues, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. And I want to stop there. Uh, Notice Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus isn't talking to his three disciples and then say, hey, let the reader understand. He's not writing this down. This is a parenthetical from Mark, okay? Which the reason why I want to stop and bring that up, there are two audiences. Jesus, audience to the disciples, 
Mark's audience that he's writing these words down. Not every word of Jesus gets recorded. So why are these words recorded and why are they being written in that particular time and shared is important to note. And we see Mark showing up here. Uh, the abomination that causes desolation, also known as the, um, oh, the desolating sacrilege, which I think is the best heavy metal band name ever, and you can't convince me that. We are the desolating sacrilege. Um, I'm going to get back. All right, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning. When God created the world until now, they will never be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So, as we kind of think about that passage and all that's going on there, because there's a lot... I want to invite up um, Crispin and, and Danielle Mayfield, uh, just because we've had different conversations over the past, and um, they have a lot of experience with these passages having grown up. So would you welcome Crispin and Danielle? Um, is there anything, you, why don't we tell people a little bit about you? That feels about right, right? You just like name and like, what, what do you do? How do you fill your time? You want to go first? Yeah. Um, I am a therapist, and we've been at Cascade since last summer. And um, right now we're in the middle. We have a podcast on just weird things. And right now we're doing a podcast on Frank Peretti. So, like, the whole, like, 90s evangelical, like, 80s and 90s evangelical artifacts thing, that just, like, fits right in there. So Left behind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Feels pretty, like, fitting. Yeah. So. And I'm Danielle, and I'm a writer, and I really like overthinking things about being an evangelical in America. So, yeah. I love that. Yeah. If you felt a little left out, you're like, who's Frankie Peretti? Don't. Um, don't look it up. Frankie Just Peretti. be good. Yeah. Just listen to our podcast when it yeah. drops. Yeah. If yeah. you want to, you can. But, yeah. like, that is deeply my childhood. Okay. <laughs> so here's what I want to know. Uh, Danielle, mm -hmm. starting with you, when this passage, like, as you hear it and you think it, within the context of your childhood growing up. How was this interpreted? How was this understood? What was it talking about? Yeah, first I just want to ask, did anybody feel a sense of dread when that passage was being read? Only a few of you are my people. <laughs> I see one very raised hand. Okay, so I grew up in um, a family, and it was mostly my mom who was very drawn to the charismatic. I was a pastor's child. We were homeschooled. Um, pretty fundamentalist now that I think about it, but my mom was really into end times theology. This would be in the late 80s, early 90s, and we just spent a lot of time reading these Bible passages. When I was 10, um, I had to watch the movie A Thief in the Night. I don't know if anybody's seen that movie. Um, that scarred me for life. Um, and also, just because of my mom was in some of the charismatic movement, there was just a lot of talk about we were in the end times and we needed to get ready. In fact, multiple people prophesied over me that I would be a martyr for Jesus before I turned 16. 
So I remember when my 16th birthday came, I was like, whoa, I was not planning for this. I literally did not play for college. Um, so, and I didn't learn how to drive. Um, so, that, so all that to say, like, this really is a part of my background. And as I, again, I said I like to overthink things. I've been really overthinking what were the values, what was driving this subculture, these left-behind books. And I really do think it's this really powerful com combination of fear and longing for safety coupled with um, a longing for power, thinking power will maybe protect us from some of this suffering that we spend a lot of time marinating in and thinking about. And I just want to share one quick Aside, my brother-in-law is from South Sudan, which has experienced so much horrific violence and, and all this stuff. And I remember um, when he came to the U.S., he lived in Salem, Oregon for like 11 years or something like that. And he heard a lot of end times talk in their sort of charismatic church. And he just said, wow, I guess for American Christians, like all the things they talk about with the persecution and end times, he's like, all those things have happened to me and everybody I know. So I guess like the end times will come when that happens to Americans, and it was just a really good look at how, and I work with refugees now, and they have experienced the end of their life multiple times over and are experiencing rebirth, but um, my community was just so solely focused on it happening to white evangelical Christians, and we had such a narrow perspective. Yeah, and so I'm interested, too, because I know, Crispin, we've talked that these are kind of resonant experiences for you, too. Mm -hmm. When you think about this from your work as a therapist... Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, the, I mean, what's really uh, interesting to think about is, I don't know if interesting is the right word, when we, when we go into this, like, survival mode, right, it, it triggers a couple of things. One is it triggers uh, scarcity, right? So you're just thinking, like, what do I need to do to survive? And also in-group loyalty, which is basically, like, who are my people and how do we all keep ourselves safe, especially from others? And so really it makes it you think about how, like, this mindset of, like, I need to get through this and I need to survive actually, like, has the opposite effect of Jesus' teachings of, like, thinking who are the others, like, who, how do we work towards the mutual flourishing of all people? Um, you know, it just hit uh, 2020, I'm thinking about 20 years ago, right? Like, stockpiling, like, how are we going to survive with our family when everybody else out there is, like, going to starve, but we're going to make it? Yeah, my mom, I think we had, like, several years' worth of food at Y2K. Mm -hmm. And um, we ate a lot of beans and rice the next few years. We actually still have <laughs> some of it in our shed. I know. So. We, can't, we can't get rid of it. Right. That's amazing. Right. Um, perfect. Thank you. Would you yeah. thank uh, Danielle and Crispin? And to continue kind of fleshing out and drawing out this idea and some of the, the imagery that's created, uh, we've had some conversations about it, so I want to invite my friend Scott Hello. to come share with us. Hello, everyone. Um, Kirk Cameron was my hero for a long time. Just when, what was it, Family Ties? No, that was the, not that. Anyways. Okay, uh, let's just, some of you have heard this before, but let's go through it again. Uh, want to talk about, like, when we're, we're talking about our language, especially this, like, prophetic language in these things. So words, our words are anchored in imagery, all right? And so like whenever we're saying things to one another, we're referencing images that we're seeing externally or internally. So I could say to you, 
like she, referencing a person, was a moment in time, sweating to the oldies, a global franchise made by one of the greatest people ever, which is Richard Simmons, uh, right there. You know what I'm talking about. So I'm actually referencing a real thing that's happening through my words, which become the symbols to that thing that's actually happening. So now, our, uh, <laughs> our beliefs are anchored in words, which is our sacred text, which are anchored in images. But a lot of us didn't grow up with that or we don't think about the images that are there. But we maybe have anchored unhelpful or ridiculous imagery to our beliefs and that's working on us. So like I could just do a thought experiment and say, hey, all of you think of heaven right now. And if we could see into each other's brains what we're thinking of after the initial shock and horror of what we witness in there, what we would, because you know what's in there, and then what we would see is very differing ideas. We all have different ideas of what heaven means, but we would find similarities. And I bet you cold, hard cash that those similarities are not from the Bible, but they're actually from movie clips and television clips and paintings and illustrations and cartoons. There's no biblical precedence for angel wings and playing harps and on clouds, but when I asked a bunch of teenagers at this conference a month ago, describe heaven, that's exactly what they said. So these images are working on our words and stuff like that. Now, uh, what happens is when we're not aware of our imagery or we have no imagery, sacred imagery, we just become a culture of word policing. We become people who go, how did you say that? Oh, I don't say it that way. I don't know if you're on my side and stuff like that. And in fact, when people, I would submit to you, when people give up their beliefs, what they're saying is they're not necessarily giving up the words, they're giving up the images that no longer work anymore. If you say, I don't believe in God anymore, you go, tell me the God you don't believe in, and you begin to say it and be like, yeah, I don't believe that God either, right? It's these images that are unhelpful, and you know some of them, there's some of them here, right, that just like some of you, maybe you, they still work for you, but you know, there's been this weird culture of some kind of imagery that's happened, and you're like, those don't make sense anymore, right? Especially this one, and that's not even true, that's just somebody's imagination. So, there we go. So, let's talk about words in context. So now, let's take these words. This is, you've probably heard this phrase before, choose a job you love and you will never work a day in your life. And you're like, that's a great statement. What are the images that come up for all of those words? Now, you might say choose. We live in a culture of choice. You go to a grocery store. There's all different kinds of things. Choosing a job. Oh, I want to be a vlogger because that sounds amazing, right? Uh, <laughs> choose a job you love and you will never work. Oh, work seems like working on a manufacturing line or something like that. A day in your life and what you imagine is like relaxing on the beach. And your life, you imagine getting very old, right? Maybe like hopefully 80, 85, 90, whatever. So we have all of these images that are referencing what those words are meaning. But this phrase, this statement, was given to us, anybody know? By Confucius, who lived in, who died in 550 B.C. So the world that he lived in was very different. So maybe choose, well, a lot of choices you didn't have a lot of choices. You grew up in a certain family and you had a certain kind of occupation. A job, hey, in 500 BC, they started inventing iron in China. And so the hot new thing was to develop iron weapons and, and like plows and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, choose a job you love. You'll never work a day in your life. Uh, mostly people, peasants worked as farms for the leading regime and stuff. So that might be it. In a day in your life, there wasn't modern travel. You couldn't go to the Caribbean from China very easily. So usually people only traveled like 20, 30 miles ever in their life 
lifetime outside of it. So maybe never working meant playing early forms of golf in your neighborhood. And your life, oh, you the people average, the average lifespan was like 40 to 45. So getting old looked like me, okay? <laughs> That's how old you would possibly get in that span. So do you understand how this phrase taken into our context means a lot of different things versus that statement in an ancient context. So now when we get into Mark, we hear these words, wars, nation against nations, earthquakes, famines, all of these things. And we go, oh yeah, there's wars always. I just heard about one going on. Nation against nation. Yeah, there's this conflict going on. Earthquakes. There was just one. Famines, you know, courts, (laughs) pregnant, false prophets. I love love Greta. But some people that like say my family, it doesn't, you know, think she's a false prophet, right? And so we will infer our modern experience of what these words are, how they're happening right now, and these are the images. But when you go into Mark, into these ancient ways, like there was tons of wars. There was nation against nation. There were earthquakes that were happening. There were famines back then. There were court systems, and people have always been pregnant. Um, And Jesus was also called a false prophet too, so make that connection. Anyway, so all of these things, you, do you see how like we're inferring our modern images to these statements and it takes the work of really understanding the context in which these things we're saying. And just a side note, images in church, like we're here, this is pretty typical of a Protestant church, which is lacking any kind of symbology and stuff. And I think personally, and I love what you said, Danielle, because I, I I've thought a lot about this too, about like why we were obsessed with um, end times and stuff. Uh, is, but one of the things as a visual learner, as a visual artist growing up in church, there was never any symbols, never any pictures around. But then on this particular subject matter, we had lots of charts and pictures. It's like we, we commissioned all the artists to make stuff about this. And so when it was presented through film and video and imagery and design and stuff, it was very powerful because a lot of the other stories and things we said, we gave no imagery or films to. So there you go. There's some things to think about on the visual side. That was so good. Thank you, Scott. Okay. So here's what we want to do. We want to look at history. Uh, And just going through, if we're talking about rapture and you're like, I'm not quite sure what we're talking about, what is that end times theology, that whole idea, it's the belief that at some point what's happening in the world will get so bad And this will be kind of a punishment, a wrapping up of this whole human experience by God. And there will be this opportunity, either pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, which is a thing that some people know about. Uh, And that's just shortening tribulation, this time of suffering across the world, where all the Christians, the chosen, the elect, get sucked up whatever rapture device there is into heaven to get to not have to suffer any of this. So regardless of what you grew up in, you want pre-trib. Let's just be very clear. That's the one that everyone wants. Um, You don't want to suffer for a long time, but Christians are good at hedging their bets. So maybe you get like a storehouse of food and a bunker to ride out the trib. Um, And then at some point, you believe that God is going to come and rescue you. That is a belief and thought. Where did that come from? It actually gets started in the 1820s, 1830s in Glasgow, Scotland. A 12-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald has a vision of this exact thing. And at a revival, she shares this story with everyone who's there. One of the people that happened to be there is John Nelson Darby, a famous evangelist that traveled all around Scotland. 
And he was interested in it, and it connected with some other experiences that he was having. So he started sharing it in his evangelism all throughout Scotland. And it started gaining some traction. Then, in a huge move, it still would have been kind of a regional Scotland idea and concept, this whole rapture, end times theology. But then he comes to the United States of America. He goes to Chicago, and it's heard by a man named D.L. Moody, who is also an American evangelist went around and the form, uh, started Moody Bible Institute and Moody Publishing, because publishing is how things spread. And so this idea started to be gain lots and lots of traction, but this is important. Only in Western Europe and America. This is not a global phenomenon. This is very much a Western world phenomenon. And it starts growing in acclaim. More and more people start adopting it, including, have any of you familiar or ever saw the Schofield Study Bible? Familiar with it? Had lots of references and notes and all of that. One of the things that the Schofield Study Bible did early on uh, was they started adding titles to the beginning of sections. Those don't appear in the Bible, just the text. So when the Schofield Study Bible puts over Matthew 24, which we'll look at, uh, Jesus predicts the rapture, people read that and say, oh, this is the Bible. And it makes sense. If you introduce the idea of a rapture onto these texts, that's what it feels like it's talking about. But if you remove it, you would say, well, wait, what is it talking about if it's not the rapture? This grows more and more, including uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, actually became a place that grabbed this, it's called dispensationalism, and began teaching it in their theological um, centers. Now, obviously, it's grabbed later by a man named Tim LaHaye, who, along with uh, Jerry Jenkins, writes this whole book called the Left Behind series. Um, It spawns bumper stickers saying, in case of rapture, this car will be left unmanned. And it's this huge, dominant thought process about how the end of the world will happen. It's a very, very recent phenomenon in Christian history. This is not something that would have been read and understood, certainly in the first through the 18th century. Nobody would have read these thoughts and think that we're talking about rapture or this kind of rapture-esque event. Now, some of you who are like, hey, the rapture's been a troubling theology for me. Oh, good, it's recent. I don't have to believe in it. That is not what I'm saying. Because there's lots of other beliefs that I'm sure you hold that are more recent Christian beliefs. So if we're just always going to go back to the beginning and say that, then we're going to have to make comfortable bedfellows with patriarchy and all kinds of other awful theology. The reason why I'm saying this isn't to say it's not true because it's recent, but it's to say that the stream of Christianity is quite wide. And you can swim in this stream and believe in the rapture and be a Christian. And you can swim in this stream and not believe in the rapture, and you can be a Christian as well. But here's what I love about there being a choice. Now I get to ask a more interesting question. Not do you believe in the rapture or not, but why do you believe in the rapture? And what does that rapture theology that you've taken into your life, what does that mean for how you live and see Jesus and see the world? And this is, like, if there is one thing about Christian theology that I would want to communicate to you, is that there is not one way to interpret these texts. It's a wide history. There's lots of diversity of thought. Go read any biblical commentary. And in the biblical commentary, they will talk about all the people that don't agree on anything and have lots of different readings. I hope that you would experience that as freedom. 
to say, well, what, how do I interpret this? And why do I interpret this the way that I do? Kind of knowing some of that history, I want to go back and read it again. We can go back to Mark 13. And I want you to, as you hear this again, kind of remove this idea of the rapture. Not saying that that's a wrong belief that you shouldn't have, but let's say that to the earliest people, this is not how they're interpreting this passage. Then how would they interpret it? Jesus was leaving the temple when the disciples said, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be a sign they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I want to pause there for a second. That brother will turn against brother. Think about the beginning of this rapture theology that the end of the world is coming in about 1820, 1830, and think about all the things that happened historically after that. If you were in the United States of America in 1860 when the Civil War is going on, this is literally what's happening. This doesn't feel like an idea. This is your actual experience and World War I and World War II. That's what I do think is a, a, it's not funny. That's not the right term. But when people are like, the United States and Iran are engaging in a war, it's the end of the world. Like, what did you think they thought during World War I? Or World War II? Or any number of these massive understandings? Or when the world was very small and when a war was the entirety that you knew of what was happening in the world? Which was the ancient world? And when we talk about famines, not like, oh, that's sad, there's a famine in Sudan. If you were in the first century and a famine hit where you did, it wasn't an inconvenience where your price of strawberries went up slightly. It was a decimating natural disaster that would have absolutely ended everything for you. You either would have died or you would have had to travel at great personal peril to find other food. These things that are being talked about are absolutely catastrophic events. Continuing on in verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, 
Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. So if this wasn't a rapture event, how did some of the earliest theologians interpret this passage? A couple of things. One is that if you look at like John uh, Chrysostom, or if you look at Augustine of Hippo, early theologians, they said that this was a prophecy speaking to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem at 70 AD. And if the writing of Mark is happening in late 60s, uh, that means that he is actually you know, right after 70, that it would not have been a mystery to the people reading it or the people hearing it in that time. That ultimately, this Jewish nationalism that was rising up in opposition to Rome would mean the destruction of this literal temple. Remember how the story begins. Whoa, look at that building. And Jesus is like, don't get caught up in that building. Because that building will fall. The center of our religious life won't be here anymore. And then what? Who are you then when the temple is down? And some of, the, some of the beliefs that, like, you need to flee and you hope that it's not in winter, uh, that this was also living during this time would have had a lot of peril and a lot of confusion because people were actively recruiting Jewish believers to come be a part of this resistance, come fight the Roman enemies. And what Jesus, I think, is saying here is don't fall for that. The idea of the Messiah, Jesus wasn't the only Messiah. And people had a choice of like, do I follow this Messiah or not? Jesus was one in a long lineage of Messiahs. If you go read the book of Maccabees, which isn't included in our sacred text, but is, that's about Joseph Maccabeus who led a messianic revolt against the Roman Empire. That's what the whole story is about. And that becomes before Jesus. And after Jesus, there's even more. As the temple is being sieged by the Roman governments, there are prophets standing up and prophesying, don't flee, don't leave, just believe, keep fighting, God will deliver us. And what Jesus, I think, is speaking to in this, in this prophecy is don't fall for that trap. Don't believe that ultimately this act of violence will liberate you or set you free. Rather than just being a text that has to deal with an event that happened in 70, I think it has a lot to say about our world today. See, what if this passage isn't about the end, capital T, capital E, but what if it's about endings? That there are things and experiences in our lives where it feels like everything has ended and the world that we have built our life and centered our life around doesn't exist anymore. In a church like Cascade, there are many of you that have left destroyed temples. And there are places where you have put your religious and your spiritual hopes, communities, places, pastors. And either for you deciding that I can't participate in that kind of religious system anymore, or you being asked to leave because of your beliefs, that building has come down and is gone. And I think the voice of Jesus is saying, but there's still hope. There's still faith. There's still a journey to walk. There's still a God who is with you. And the fact that that building come, came down is not the indictment that God is not with you or God has failed you in some way, 
but we know that this is the cycle of things in this world. The death and destruction, that wars and threats of wars is the way of the world. Don't get caught up in those. When I was talking about it this week, um, I started <laughs> laughing because this passage reads like an apocalyptic WebMD. As you're going through it, you're like, oh no, famines, I just read about a famine. War? I just, and a threat of war? The more you read, the more you're like, oh, this is it. Because this is always it. Because it continues to be it. Because there continues to be these catastrophic moments in our lives. And Jesus is inviting us to say, there's still more to be done. There's still more work. To, there's still more places to go. And I will be with you. There will be people that will tell you, you've lost your way. That you've abandoned and violated the faith. And yet, I am with you. And I'm walking with you even when this temple falls, even when this thing that we put our trust in isn't there anymore. My hope and prayer is that that is good news for us and that we don't have to respond in a world that creates scarcity where we have to protect ourselves or seeking an in-group where we can continue to say, yeah, but we don't believe it's that way but we can actually hear a divergence of opinions and a divergence of understanding because we know that God is still with us. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your presence in a time in our world's history where things were tense and there was war and violence and a lot of people had lost hope. Because, God, when we face similar things, that means that you are with us. And, God, it means that you are with the oppressed and the marginalized. You are with the people that are being put into this vice grip of tension and geopolitics. God, I pray that we would not seek to protect temples and bolster up temples that need to fall. But, God, we would be willing to go with you, to go with the going, God, to find new places and to participate in new systems where all can be set free, not just some. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.